Good morning, Toronto. Andy McNamara with you here on Toronto Today. TSN 1050. TSN1050.ca, the iHeartRadio app. Lots to get to in just a couple of hours. And uh, 20 minutes, Brad Gagnon, Bleacher Report, national NFL writer, will join me. There is a ton going on in the National Football League. A ton off the field. Suspensions on the field. Injuries. There's news about the Cleveland Browns uh, They're giving away, uh, after their first home win, a beer company in the U.S. Free beer. Free beer at 10 locations in Cleveland when the Browns get their first regular season win, which, God, I hope is sooner, <laughs> sooner rather than later. But what will happen is this beer fridge will then be unlocked at 10 restaurants or bars in Cleveland. They'll open up. People can run in, get a whole bunch of free beer. I can't see any problem with that at a facility where people are most likely already drunk fighting over free beer. Seems like a disaster. But we'll talk to Brad about other NFL things. Uh, 11.40, Jason Agnew, host of Sunday Night Main Event on TSN 11.50 out of Hamilton to talk about the sad passing of Jim the Anvil Neidhart yesterday, the summer of, of wrestlers passing away. And uh, look ahead as there are a couple of events coming to the city as well in the near future. We'll talk some Leafs, uh, some Leafs in the, our poll question about Leafs training camp. Less than a month away. Yesterday was exactly 30 days. Exactly 30 days. We'll get to some Leaf talk and also some Raptors conversation with Paul Jones, TSN 1050. Raptors play-by-play voice. That's going to be at 1220. With the Raptors coming up a little bit later than the Leafs. But this, this summer, and Josh Lewinberg has written about this, the Raptors are so deep, and this is a great problem to have, what is this starting lineup going to look like? And how much does it matter considering the depth of their bench? So I'll go over with Paul. Is this bench deeper or better than last year? The team as a whole. Now you think you add in Kawhi Leonard, obviously, if he's healthy, you have a significant upgrade on both sides of the ball. But is, is this team, as it is built, ready to contend with the Celtics in the East and with Philly? Milwaukee's a little bit of a dark horse at this point. Even maybe Philly is a bit young, but they have the the horses to maybe pop up. The question with Boston is, and I'll go over this with Jonesy as well, is that team, like everyone's crowning Boston, Boston's crowning Boston, Jalen Brown of the Celtics saying they're going to the finals. Well, okay, but you have Kyrie Irving and Gordon Hayward set to return from injuries. They missed pretty much the whole year. So... That team that did well is going to look totally different with those two guys on the floor. That's going to mean shifts in roles for maybe someone like Jalen Brown. Other players that had more significant roles maybe have to step back. How's the chemistry going to work? Are they going to fall in line? A lot of egos there. You have to think, too. If you're a player on the Celtics and you help the team do as well as it did, and then all of a sudden your playing time gets cut because two other guys, stars or not, are coming back, that's not going to rub people the right way. So I don't think it's a given that Boston is the runaway favorite in the East. They have their own plenty of injury concerns. Kyrie Irving can't stay healthy. His knees are scrap metal. Gordon Hayward gets banged around. So it's not just the Raptors that have to worry about injuries in Kawhi Leonard. Certainly that's a big one. Like If, if Kawhi can't go, the season's done. It's over. You're, you're not going to win with just Danny Green, who has his own injury concerns and Kyle Lowry. But for that East battle, if you believe it's between the Celtics and Raptors, and I do, 
I'm not crowning the Celtics. No way. Not yet. So I'll be with Paul Jones a little bit later on. Let's get to our Twitter poll here. At AndyMC81 and uh, the station at TSN 1050 Radio. Question is Leafs related. And with training camp again, just under a month away now. Who has the most pressure? The expectations are at an all-time high, at least in our generation, right? Probably the highest since, what, 2003, 2004, when they were conference finalists. Expectations that high in at least 15 years. Who has the most pressure? Which of these Maple Leafs have the most pressure on them to have a great season? Austin Matthews. Hey, guy back-to-back 30-plus goal seasons, right? Coming in. But then there's John Tavares. Huge signing. Lots of cash. So he was hailed, rightly or wrongly, like the savior. This is the guy who's going to put us over the top. Is the most pressure on Tavares. Or what about the coaching staff in the front office? What about Babcock and Dubas? These guys are the architects. They're the masterminds of this whole thing. Is the most pressure on them? Or is it on the back end with Freddie Anderson? The goaltender. Because with Freddie, with the defense being suspect, it's okay. It's not a terrible defense, but it's just okay. You need a stud goalie to save you. And I think that pressure on Freddie Anderson might dissipate a bit depending on what they do with the backup situation. Do you have Garrett Sparks? I talked with James Myrtle yesterday on the station of the Athletic Toronto, and it seems to us like the most sense would make have Garrett Sparks as the backup, have him play a significant amount of games, keep Anderson fresh, and you got two guys who have the potential to be absolute monsters in between the pipes. Like, there's nothing else for Garrett Sparks to do. There's nothing. AHO goaltender of the year won the Calder Cup. What else do you want the guy to do? My fear is if you send him back again, as great a work ethic as he might have or anybody, it's only natural. If you work hard, you do the best job you can do, you're winning, you're getting rave reviews, and then the boss man says, uh, yeah, yeah, good, go. No, not yet. You're gonna be un- it's going to be unmotivating for you to some level. But if you bring him up, that takes some pressure off of Freddie Anderson. So that's the question. At TSN 1050 Radio, at AndyMC81 on Twitter, which Maple Leaf has the most pressure on them to have a great season? Austin Matthews, John Tavares, Babcock slash Dubas, or Freddie Anderson? So I'm going to go. I think the most pressure on him is, uh, I, th- I think it's got to be I'm torn between Tavares and Freddie Anderson, but I'm going to say Freddie Anderson because we don't know the situation with the backup goaltender yet. If if Sparks comes in, I would change it to Tavares, but I'm going to say Anderson right now because the star power is going to be there. The defense is suspect. Everything points to Freddie Anderson. He can't be as inconsistent. And some help from a quality backup to ease the workload might help in that. But he has got to stand on his head. If you're going the Pittsburgh model, when the Penguins won the Stanley Cup, it was, you got lot of firepower, lot of scoring. Remember, Latang was injured. Empty on defense and a lights-out goalie. And everyone, they can't win without a defense. You got And the Penguins did because you had the goaltending and you had high-octane scoring. That, to me, is how this Leafs, planned or not, how this Leafs team is built right now. But it hinges on Freddie Anderson stopping everything. So I'm going to vote Freddie Anderson. Let's go behind the glass. Joe Narsa, our steam producer. Joe, how's it going, buddy? Good. How are you? I'm good, man. What do you think of this? What do you think of this poll? Who has the most pressure? Because 
like when we were talking about it before, this is the all-time high. We've gone beyond for Maple Leaf land of, hey, wouldn't it be cool to make the playoffs? To Oh, hey, we're in the playoffs. Now it's like, get the cup. It, it's, it's straight up. I would say, one, I think the poll is great. Great question. I don't know who came up with it, but it is a great I think it was poll. an amalgamation. I think it was a... Mostly a, a, behind the glass. Right. Mm. Uh, and I would say <laughs> the person who's under the most pressure this year, I think, is Mike Babcock. Oh, really? I think last year, halfway through the season, the clock started on the coach. And there was criticisms of the way he was playing his roster, the amount of minutes he was divvying up between Matthews and the rest of the forwards, not to mention the power play time. And I think Mike Babcock now has a team that is good enough to win games and win a lot of games and be a contender in the Atlantic Division, which, don't get me wrong, is not going to be easy, especially with Boston and Tampa and Florida getting better. Sure, especially Tampa. Like, Tampa's not fooling around. Exactly. But I do think that Mike Babcock's going to be under the most pressure here because I think the players that we've mentioned in the poll are very proven, and they've proven to be successful. Other than the fact that Tavares is going to be wearing a Maple Leafs jersey, that's probably going to add some pressure to him. New team, new role. Yeah. Has, has a supporting cast. That should be a good problem for him. Exactly, and you may see you may see a scenario where Tavares might have maybe five to ten less points than he did with the island because he's not having to go through twenty six minutes a game and dominate on the ice mm-hmm. and have to do everything. But I just think Mike Babcock has a lot to prove. He came in here saying the right things and doing everything right, accepting a losing situation, helped make, tear the whole thing down. Exactly. But now he's got to prove that when the Maple Leafs signed him to the most lucrative deal a coach has ever gotten in the NHL. And they basically crowned him the best coach in the NHL by giving him eight million a year. A lot of money. Now he's going to have to prove it, and he has the roster to do so outside of you know one or two defensemen. Well, on Twitter, at Canadian loves me agrees with you. Joe says it's all on Babcock and and the distribution of this talent. Because as you said, they have now up front almost an embarrassment of riches. You got right down the middle, envy of almost the whole league, the depth at center. Matthews, Tavares, Kadri, Sprinkling, Marner, Nylander. You got youngsters coming up. There is a lot to work with. So I'll agree with you on that, Joe, in that it is going to be on Babcock to distribute it. And maybe more importantly, not be stubborn. Not be stubborn if something is not working. We've seen him stick and hold to, onto ideas that maybe he should have let, let go of or evolved with, whether that's the power play, line combo, combos that weren't working. This is a win-now scenario for the Maple Leafs. So, Joe, I, I'm, I wonder if we see him digging his heels like in years past, that's where he might get into trouble. I think when you look at Babcock's history, he was never a digging-the-heels type coach. He never committed to his forward units. He never committed to any player in Detroit, no matter who he was. There was uh, spurts where Datsuk, Zetterberg, and Holmstrom were fantastic. They lose a game or two, and boom, they're broken up, and Mm -hmm. too bad, figure it out. I think what Babcock was doing last year was a little of trying to teach the younger players that sometimes you're just going to have to battle through it. And sometimes I'm going to have to see you just beat somebody. And if you can't do that, then that's an assessment on that player. And that's fine, Joe, when you're assessing and growing as a team. Different expectations this year. Last year we were still in the mode of, hey, getting to the playoffs is cool. Let's try to win a round. Now it's not just winning one round, multiple rounds is the expectation. And I think if these players had found that Mike Babcock was a little bit hard to deal with and didn't take a lot of BS and wasn't the type of coach that was very accepting for the last year or so, they're going to meet a different person this year at training camp because Mike Babcock's going to come in believing and knowing that this team is very good. 
And when a team is very good, Mike Babcock expects a lot out of them. And I think everybody's leash is going to be shorter. And if Austin Matthews was frustrated in that Boston series where he did not play well at all, then he better make sure he never gets to that situation again because Babcock's going to be even less lenient when he has a superstar center that's not Austin Matthews, always ready to go, and who's a little bit more proven. And the other factor for both Tavares and Matthews is you're not going to have to lean on just one. If Matthews is struggling, Tavares can pick him up, vice versa. You have that option, you have that depth, which then in turn takes the pressure off of everybody because you can spread it around a little bit. That's For Tavares, it was all on him on Long Island. All on him. For Matthews last year, now he had a supporting cast, but really, what was the focus? It was on Matthews all the time. Well, now you have Tavares there. And I think that balance there, especially depending what is done on the power play, that's going to be a real benefit for that team, Joe. And we'll have to see if, if with that pressure sort of taken off, what that does for the whole team. Because I'm hoping it means big things. Not to mention, I think the person that's going to succeed the most out of this situation is going to be Nazem Kadri. Because what you're going to have is Austin Matthews and John Tavares being in situations where they're playing the best up against the best defensemen, against the best shutdown centers and shutdown units. And Nazem Kadri is going to have to turn around and play against the weaker units. And I think Maple Leaf fans are going to see Nazem Kadri being even more so of a game changer than he was last season, the season before, because he's now going to be in a situation where he's arguably going to be in the the better player on the ice no matter what period it is what shift it is because you have to com- you have to command a lot of respect when you're throwing out Matthews, Marlowe and Nylander and mm-hmm. then oh you know what we'll go to the other line Tavares, Hyman and Marner and then with Kadri and what's beautiful about adding Tavares Joe is everybody gets pushed down a little bit right everybody gets put into a more natural slot and for Kadri, look at his last two seasons. Played 82 games 2016-17. 80 games last year. 32 goals. 32 goals. A few less assists last year. But now when you add Tavares, this can be a situation for Nazem Kadri where if he's playing against lesser talent, maybe we're, maybe we're talking about Nazem Kadri as a 40-goal scorer. Is that crazy? That might not be a crazy thought. At 32 goals the last two seasons... If you look at Nazem Kadri going up against lesser talent, benefiting on the power play, Nazem Kadri could be a potential 40-goal scorer there, Joe. Well, he could no, be 32 two years in a row if he faces easier competition. Not to mention he's no longer going to be playing with Leo Komarov, who's a little bit of an anchor on that yeah, line. Yeah. I mean, if you have him alongside uh, Andreas Janssen and Connor Brown, those are two players that can push pace. They're offensively mm-hmm. talented and gifted. And if one of them falters, well, Kasperi Kapanen's ready to go. And if somebody falters there, well, Josh Levo's ready to go. And the You have good enough complementary pieces. The bottom six of the Maple Leafs are going to be able to throw out on the ice. They're going to be a lot more skilled than a lot of other teams' bottom sixes. The issue is going to be how they can compete. And we know Nazem Kadri can. He's become one of the better shutdown centers. He's arguably one of the best third-line centers in hockey right now. His face-off, his face-off ability has improved so much. It's that that's that's really one of the dark horse skill sets. I think that has, makes him so valuable. Yeah, but I would set his goal total over under. I'd say probably thirty five. I think thirty five is a fair number. If he goes over, that's the Leafs are. If if he's over thirty five goals, I would argue the Leafs are probably first in the division because that is a lot of goals coming from a third line. From center. a third line center, you yeah. don't see that. And he had twelve power play goals the last two seasons as well. So maybe with the extra pieces and extra combos, maybe that goes up. 
We'll get more into Leaf Talk in a little bit. We'll step aside. Uh, after the break, we will talk with Brad Gagnon from the Bleacher Report National NFL writer. There is a ton to talk about in the National Football League. Stay tuned. A lot more coming up. Toronto Today, TSN 1050. Back to Toronto Today on TSN 1050. TSN1050.ca, the iHeartRadio app. I'm Andy McNamara. You can get me on Twitter at AndyMC81. The station at TSN 1050 Radio. Still to come, we'll talk some Raptors with Paul Jones at 12.20. Play-by-play Raptors voice getting ready for the season. He'll be here before you know it. And a lot more Leaf Talk. You can vote on our Twitter poll question at TSN 1050 Radio at AndyMC81, which is, which Maple Leaf has the most pressure on them to have a great season? Austin Matthews, John Tavares, Babcock slash Dubas, so the coaching staff for front office, or... Frederick Anderson. You can vote there at AndyMC81. But let's talk some National Football League. Brad Gagnon, Bleacher Report National NFL writer on the line. Brad, how's it going, man? Good, man. First of all, it has to be Austin Matthews, right? I mean, he was the guy, and now there's a new guy. I'm not even a Leaf fan, but it's got to be Austin Matthews. Well, you can vote in the poll, Brad. I'll update you how it goes. That's good. I will. I love the way in. Yeah. Hey, there's going to be a lot of pressure on all these guys. The, the expectations are sky high now in Leaf Nation. Uh, but, Brad, let's, let's go to the. Uh, we can start off the field. We can start on the field. Um, you had, as far as the most recent news, Saquon Barkley tweaking that hamstring leg, whatever. That was a scary moment for the Giants. Pat Shermer saying it looks like nothing too serious. Um, Boy, if if you're a Giants fan, that's got to be incredibly frightening because it just takes one tweak and you could go like Darius Geist did with the the Redskins and miss the whole season. Yeah, I mean that's that's the risk. That's the you know it's essentially roulette in August and, <laughs> and and to an extent in July. And you know ACLs are going to be torn and and season-ending injuries are going to happen. They're going to happen basically every week between now and the first week of September. And it's just you got to hope that they're not going to happen to your players on your team. And <clears throat> that's essentially all it is. So um, you know in Barkley's case, yeah, again it looks like he for, he got lucky for two reasons. It, it doesn't seem to be serious or a long-term thing, and also it happened early enough that. You know, it probably won't linger into the regular season. But um, there aren't many teams in the league who are going to be more reliant on one rookie this season in terms of their success or failure than the New York Giants for Saquon Barkley, especially because the four, you know, the big four quarterbacks and then the other first rounder, Jamal uh, or Lamar Jackson, um, are all not slated right now anyway to be starters in week one. So that kind of leaves you with Barkley and, 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 you know, Quentin Nelson and Bradley Chubb as the, probably the biggest impact rookies this year. And, and the Giants need Barkley to team up with Odell Beckham Jr. and kind of make that one-two punch receiving, uh, receiving slash running duo for Eli Manning. So, um, I can't see them being very successful this year if he's not there, healthy, successful, and, uh, and, and productive. And, if he is, I could see them having a great year. He could be that much of a difference maker right off the bat. Uh, Brad, I totally agree with you because what he does is make that Giants offense multidimensional where for so long it has been, well, we know Eli's going to throw and you can tee off and cover and all that and you know he's not going to run. So he does make all the difference in the world. So we'll have to see what that means to the NFC East there. want to get to New England with the Patriots with Tom Brady, and Brad seems each year, is this going to be the year Brady falters? He's 42 years old, and he came out on ESPN that um, he has said, hey, my priorities are the same as Belichick, just to win. All this off-season stuff, Brady's saying he's not appreciated, the team now restructuring his deal to give him some more incentive-based money. When it's all, all said and done, do you think this is just going to be the Patriots of old and they're just going to flip the switch? I think this year, I mean, it's it's... It's foolish to even say this because you're almost always going to be wrong. <laughs> but 
I think this year could be tough. I think that, you know, they're more fallible than ever. I think, you know, the fact that Tom Brady was an aberration at, at 39 and 40 and 41, eventually father time is going to beat you. It just is. And, and maybe this is the year. I mean, statistically, it's always been the year. Only two quarterbacks have ever even made a pro bowl uh, beyond the age of 40. He just won the MVP at that age. Um, now you're talking 41, uh, where, you know, only, you know, that we've never had a quarterback enter a season at the age of 41 and, and, and put together a pro bowl campaign. Um, even Warren Moon and Brett Farr felt like they were around forever. They were already, you know, out of gas at this point in time. So you wonder how much he has left. And then the fact that you you know the support isn't there like it used to be. I mean, they lose Nate Solder, their stalwart left tackle in free agency. Julian Edelman is going to be dealing with a four-game suspension to start the season. Based to that receiving core, Rob Gronkowski historically has had a lot of trouble consistently staying healthy. So if he has problems at all, then all of a sudden you're even more thin at those positions. You lost Deion Lewis, you lost Malcolm Butler. Um, you know they, they've really gone through a lot this offseason and on and off the field in terms of you know the fact that Tom Brady wasn't there at OTAs and Gronk and he were apparently upset about their contract situations. Even if that's been ironed out to an extent with Brady, um, and obviously they're both going to be there and on the. Field Field from the get-go this year, um, you do wonder if, 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 you know, the league is starting to catch up with them a little bit. They certainly are more vulnerable than they've been in the past. And right now, you know, there's at least three or four teams in the NFC that a lot of folks consider to be just as good, if not better, in the Eagles, the Saints, you know, the Vikings. Um, it's it's going to be tough this year. In conversation with Brad Gagnon, Bleacher Report, National NFL writer on Twitter, at Brad underscore Gagnon. And let's talk about those the other divisions, other contenders here for a minute, Brad, because as you said, the NFC is loaded. The AFC is interesting because, especially when you look at, I think, the AFC South and the AFC West, because you got the Jags, they're fighting off the field. You have Peyton Manning coming back with the Colts, Deshaun Watson, J.J. Watt coming back to the Texans. It There could be a shift, and especially the power in the AFC West, which seems to be really hanging in between the Chiefs, the Raiders maybe with Gruden, uh, the, the Chargers with Phil Rivers always have a chance, and then, well, what the heck's going to happen with, with Case Keenum uh, in Denver? Mm-hmm. How do you think this playoff structure and, and the AFC is going to differ from last year with those those couple of returns? Yeah, you, you make a good point about those two divisions. That's where the excitement is. I mean, the East and the North, I mean, it, it would be shocking if New England and Pittsburgh didn't run away with those two yeah. divisions. I don't think anyone expects Miami or the Jets or even the Bills um, or, or in the North, the Bengals, the Browns, or even the Ravens to really be you know major contenders this season that they haven't been in, in, in recent years to begin with. So, you know, those six teams are sort of ruled out from the beginning. You've got New England and Pittsburgh, and then you look at the South, and you're right, you've got these – these four good quarterbacks, or at least exciting young quarterbacks, or promising quarterbacks, or high draft picks in Bortles' case, because I don't think he qualifies for anything else I just said. <laughs> but, um, you know, and, and you've got all that talent in Jacksonville. You've got the, the clear upward trajectory. Tra- Okay, trajectory. There we go. There you go. <laughs> in Tennessee, you've got uh, you've got a Texans team that's getting Watt and Watson back, as you mentioned, and you've got Andrew Luck back with Indianapolis. So um, there's, you know, any four of those fan bases can be like, yeah, there's obviously our team is the favorite. Of course, we have Deshaun Watson back. Of course, we have Andrew Luck back. Of course, we have the best defense in the league, arguably in Jacksonville. Or, of course, Tennessee again. That 
that momentum that they seem to have with their rebuild right now. And Mariota entering what should be a strong season as he gets, you know, top five pick Corey Davis healthy this time, uh, you know, compared to last year when he wasn't reliable. So that division has so much promise in it right now where any of those four teams could go in a run, especially if Pittsburgh and New England flips up. Any of those four teams could be contending in the AFC Championship game like the Jaguars were last year when they had a good chance to beat New England and go to the Super Bowl. And then, yeah, you, you mentioned the West. That's the most up-for-grabs division in football, where just a year ago it was all about Oakland. Yeah. Uh, then then this past year was all about Kansas City. Denver, of course, was a you know went to two Super Bowls not long ago based on the defense, and it's still generally together and still has Von Miller as its leader and now adds Bradley Chubb, as I mentioned, a high, high uh, promising top top five pick who's the, the favorite to win defensive player of the year. And then there's the Chargers, who we always talk about it, it's their finally their year, right? It's their, you know, they're right. going to finally stay healthy. They've got Phillip Rivers. They're so strong on defense. They've got one of the best pass rushing duos in the league. They've got a good secondary. They've got a lot of weapons, good running game. I mean, they are, you know, front to back all around one of the, one of the deeper, most talented teams in football. But they seem to be snake bitten on a year to year basis, whether it's bad breaks, whether it's bad kicking, whether it's oh. injuries. And now, sure enough, they've already lost Hunter Henry, who is the high promising, you know, promising tight end. Um, and so you wonder if they're just going to be jinxed again this season. But all four of those teams, um, you know, again, you can kind of stake a claim that they should be the favorites in that division. And again, Pittsburgh and New England are vulnerable. Besides the big three in Pittsburgh, any of those guys goes down or Le'Veon Bell doesn't come through and what's going to be a weird year in terms of his contract or Tom Brady isn't quite right or the Pats are, you know, as vulnerable as I mentioned earlier in this conversation, then any of those teams could potentially look at making a Super Bowl run. And, and that's where the that's where the excitement's gonna be. I think really in the NFL, let alone in the AFC, because in the NFC you do have some some fairly obvious candidates that are gonna stand out as well. Yeah, with the defending Super Bowl champs. But what is it, Brad? The NFC East hasn't had a repeat champ since like 2004 or something. Mm-hmm. Like it's so who knows, right? Like you have Carson Wentz working his way back. You got Nick Foles there uh, with the Cowboys, of course. Dak Prescott. They seem to be on board. Uh, the Redskins. Well, okay, Alex Smith. What can he do? Is still not very much to work with, and that's why it's so disappointing to me when Darius Geis went down. That was the perfect kind of bulldog pound it running back and then the Giants that we mentioned like that division too as much I would say yeah the Eagles are the favorites but when it comes to wild card spots any of those other three teams could pop up and surprise don't you think yeah and Philly's not you know not a guarantee either I mean that the West thing is is pretty concerning and and, you know the Super Bowl hangover is real Um, we've seen it on practically a year-to-year basis you talk about a team as an you know, to won that division uh, two years in a row and over a decade. The team hasn't won the Super Bowl two years in a row and over a decade either. And you know, so like, it, it's it's uh, it's going to be tough to repeat. You have a target on your back. You lost you lost your offensive coordinator. Um, you lost your quarterback's coach. Um, Nick Foles, as fantastic as he was during that playoff run last year, um, you know, Joe Flacco was fantastic during that playoff run with Baltimore in 2012. Nick Foles is streaky and and. Um, he's had some terrible stretches during his, his career as well. And, and I don't know if you want to rely on him for a long stretch, but the fact that Carson Wentz is already kind of sending out signals that there's a chance he's not going to be there week one, that doesn't mean he's like 
Shuri's going to be there week two. I mean, well, this yeah. could be this could be something that lingers. And so if if he comes back and isn't himself, or he doesn't come back, either way, you potentially have a problem. And I don't think just saying that Nick Foles won Super Bowl MVP last year means that you're necessarily going to have an MVP caliber guy there just because of uh, Wentz isn't. And so they have questions at quarterback. Throw in that their top receiver, Alshon Jeffrey, might miss uh, the first up to six games apparently of the season potentially. Um, and and I think the Eagles are somewhat uh, uh, beatable in that division. Um, you're right. You don't feel overly confident about the Redskins based on that Geist loss and, and, and the fact that they're going to have you know, you know, kind of a lot of transition at the quarterback position as well. Uh, questions about the Giants, questions about the Cowboys. Dak Prescott had a terrible sophomore slump last year, but that division is wild on a year-by-year basis. And I think all three of those other teams are certainly wild card, wild card contenders, as, as you alluded to. Um, but one of them could easily rise up and win that division as well. In conversation with Brad Gagne on Bleacher Report, national NFL writer. Last one for you here, Brad. Which of these three quarterbacks that went to new homes in the offseason do you think is going to have the best season? you got Kirk Cousins going to the Minnesota Vikings. We know how prolific that offense can be. Heck, they made Case Keenum look good. you got Alex Smith to Washington, as we mentioned. Or, sorry, uh, Alex Smith to Washington, as we mentioned. Case yep. Keenum to Denver. And doesn't, Brad, doesn't, like, the Case Keenum situation, does this not reek of a guy who let, hey, great year. Case Keenum has sucked for the most part of his career. He got, and good on him, dude got paid. But does that not just reek of, like, rapid regression with the Broncos, you know? Like, so if you go Cousin Smith, Keenum, rank, rank to me how you think, uh, who's going to have the most success? I don't mind the Keenum move because they paid ten million less a year for a guy who might just just might be as good as as, as Cousins. He was on paper last season, mm-hmm. but you're taking a bigger risk and you're spending less money. It's not a it's not a terrible kind of half measure if you you know you're not there in the Kirk Cousins sweepstakes. Right. But yeah, I think that clearly Cousins has done more in his career. He's been to a Pro Bowl. He's, he's taken a team to the playoffs. He's been solid as the start of the last three years, one of the top 10 or 12 statistically in the NFL, and he's off to a heck of a start right now. He's also got the better supporting cast than the other two guys. I think that's the clear edge maybe right now where he's taking Thielen and, and, and Dalvin Cook is back and the offensive line has made progress. And so I think, you know, not to mention the defense might be one of the best in the league and, and was statistically last year. And so having that supporting cast is probably what really puts Kirk Cousins over the top in addition to the fears that Case Keenum might indeed be a one-hit wonder. But I think Alex Smith, Alex Smith is certainly right there. We continually underrate Alex Smith, and especially based on what he did last year. Now, it's possible that was a bit of an aberration as well, but the fact is he was the highest-rated passer in the NFL last yeah. year. It wasn't Tom Brady, the MVP. It wasn't Drew Brees. Uh, it wasn't Carson Wentz, who was, we you know we raved about all year. It was Alex Smith, who who put up those numbers and averaged eight yards in attempts. So you can't just say, well, he was captain checkdown as he was in the past. Only he, Drew Brees, and Jared Goff averaged more than eight yards in an attempt last season. So he was he was slinging it. And if he can continue that in D.C., where he's still got a pretty good supporting cast, maybe not as good as Kansas City, but a pretty good supporting cast, I think he could have a great season as well. So if I'm ranking them, I'm going Cousins 1, I'm going Alex Smith like 1A, and then, yeah, I, I just don't know if I can trust Case Keenum yet, but who knows? He could he could easily prove us wrong and be a late bloomer. That's right. He did it once. Who knows? Uh, Brad, thank you so much. Let's do this again real soon. Thanks a lot, Andy. All right, buddy. Brad Gagnon, Bleacher Report, National NFL writer on Twitter, at Brad underscore Gagnon. I'm just looking right now at the Washington Redskins lineup, their roster, with Alex Smith. And remember, he, 
He had a nice group in Kansas City. Yeah, Tyreek Hill chucking it up. Yeah, Kareem Hunt in the backfield. And that's why with Darius Geis going down, like he fell in the draft because of off field. He he just essentially pissed people off at the combine. NFL managers had a weird, quirky personality, rubbed people the wrong way. That's a first round talent. Blew out his ACL. He's gone. So for Alex Smith, listen to the guys he has to throw to. Okay, you got Jamison Crowder. Eh. Slot guy, 5'9", 177. Eh, he's okay. Josh Doxson, okay. You can get downfield, he can flash. Not going to wow you necessarily. Uh, does Darvin Kidsey interest you? No. no. Uh, Paul Richardson from Seattle. Another, he's just a guy. Dan Williams the third. Okay? And rookie Simi Cobbs Jr., who I like, 6'3", 220, in the combine and coming out of college. Not a speedster, real good hands, and a smooth route runner. So I like Simi Cobbs Jr., but you don't have that necessarily, that game breaker like a Tyree kill. To me, the Washington just has a bunch of guys for Alex Smith to throw to. And when you take out guys, now the running back group looks a whole lot less interesting. Capri Bibbs, journeyman, had just, I think, a game or two look good in Denver a couple years back. Martez Carter, rookie, no. Uh, Rob Kelly, another guy, okay. Sam Pirine, real good in spurts, can't rely on him. Chris, like you, you have, Chris Thompson's there, of course, and, and he can be real good. But when you look at that group as a whole, Alex Smith does not have a lot to work with. So I could see him having to really kind of fall back into that game manager role, protecting the ball, just because he doesn't have the options to push. Doesn't have the options to really drive it downfield. Uh, we'll step aside and uh, talk a little wrestling when we come back. The sad passing of Jim the Anvil Neidhart, one half of the Hart Foundation with Brett the Hitman Hart uh, yesterday at the age of 63. Also, a couple other wrestlers passing away over the summer months. Uh, we'll talk about that and um, hopefully some happier notes with Jason Agnew, host of Sunday Night Main Event, the great wrestling show on TSN 1150. That's next on Toronto Today. to Toronto today. I'm Andy McNamara here on TSN 1050, tsn1050.ca, the iHeartRadio app. That sound you hear is the entrance music for the Hart Foundation. Not just Brett the Hitman Hart, but also the original tag team back in the WWF in the 1980s with Jim the Anvil Neidhart, who passed away yesterday at the age of 63. Is the third in a series of wrestling deaths over the summer. I'm Nikolai Volkov and Brian Lawler. Uh, to talk about this, and, and we'll, we'll get up, upbeat a little bit as well, but uh, my guy Jason Agnew, host of Sunday night's main event, terrific wrestling show on TSN 1150 at 11 p.m. Jay, how's it going, man? Doing well, Andy. Thanks for having me, despite the circumstance. Oh, I know. And, and you know what? Just There are some wrestling theme songs that as soon as they hit, you're like, yes, and you just go up. It's like Hulk Hogan's Real American, Stone Cold, The Breaking Glass, and for me, that Hitman, that Heart Foundation sound when the guitar riff goes. Uh, what did the the Heart Foundation as a team out of Canada uh, won the tag team championships? What did that do for the, the the tag team division at the time in the 80s? But then also really helped to catapult Bret Hart as the Canadian star and eventual world champ. 
Yeah, well, I mean, if you go back to the time where, where Jim Neidhart and Bret Hart actually got together, what had happened is Vince McMahon went into Calgary and bought Stu Hart's Stampede Wrestling. Because at that time, all of wrestling was very territorial. So there was a territory in, you know, a New York, which was where WWE was. And then you had, you went a little bit south, you had Mid-South, you had WCCW over in, like, Texas and such. You had Memphis Wrestling. So Stampede Wrestling was the staple out in Alberta. And Vince McMahon wanted that territory in order to also gain the TV time. So he walked in and he bought the territory and wanted it to shut down. When Stu Hart, Bret Hart's father, made that deal, his condition was his big stars would be employed by the WWF and Vince McMahon and go on to their shows. And those stars included Bret Hart, Jim Neidhart, and both Davy Boy Smith and Dynamite Kid. So Bret Hart started off as Cowboy Bret Hart, and it was a terrible, <laughs> terrible gimmick for him. You talk to Bret about this gimmick, which I've had the opportunity to, and he's like, I'm not a cowboy, and I'm from Calgary, and everyone knew it wasn't legit. And his career was floundering. Anvil wasn't doing much either. So Bret actually went to them and said, hey, Throw me in with Neidhart. Give me Jimmy as the manager. We've all got a heart in our last name, even though we're not related. Call us the Hart Foundation. And that was the genesis. And then, you know, working with Davy Boy Smith and Dynamite Kid, the British Bulldogs, all of these four guys knew each other so well from Stampede Wrestling. And, you know, you have Dynamite Kid and Bret Hart in particular were excellent performers in the ring. Jim Neidhart was a huge personality and was the big talker, and David Boy Smith was a powerhouse. So those four guys really did great things for the WWF tag division right around WrestleMania two. Right, right, and and you mentioned Neidhart being great on the stick and that look, that laugh, the beard, and really with, with Bret Hart at first, from what I read, Jay was that he wore the glasses because he didn't really know what to do with his eyes during promo, kind of covered up. It gave a cool look. Neidhart took over and allowed Bret to do the in-ring work, and eventually, of course, he uh, grew much better on the mic. But Neidhart, his legacy. When you look kind of big picture at Jim Neidhart, what what do you think of? I think you already mentioned it. I mean, people remember Jim Neidhart as a guy who could talk. He had the big barrel chest. Yes. And then you always remember the goatee and the laugh. <laughs> the laugh at the end of all the promos. Let's face it. I mean, he was limited as far as what he would do in the ring. He was the powerhouse, and Bret Hart was a technical worker. And as you said, Bret Hart went on to tremendous success. You know, the greatest wrestler coming out of Canada. I, I believe there's other people that might say, you know, you got your Jerichos in there currently, mm-hmm. Kenny Omega, etc. But Bret Hart is the one who's known with the Maple Leaf and known as the Canadian wrestler. But that was very much a trend in those days because you also look at a team like the Rockers with Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty, and Shawn Michaels started in tag team wrestling and then on, went on to huge fame as the Heartbreak Kid, etc. Yeah, you had the one guy that always seemed to kind of emerge out of that. And, of course, for Jim Neidhart, his legacy continues today with Natty Neidhart, known as Natalia in WWE, and, and kind of continues that heart legacy. And, and really, it all just stems from, from Brett and Jim as it, as it carries on. So very, very tragic that Jim Neidhart passed away. But some other uh, wrestling deaths to talk about, too, here, Jay. Uh, Nikolai Volkov. Uh, earlier, and Brian Lawler, Volkov, a little bit old, in his 70s, I think, and boy, when you talk about, like, Jim Neidhart as a character, the classic 80s, if you think of, like, stereotypical heel bad guy, the evil Russian, like, nobody played it better than Volkov. 
Yeah, Volkov was great for that. I mean, he had a run way back in the WWF, and then he was a little bit older in the peak period of WrestleMania 1 and 2, and he was paired with the Iron Sheik, and for sure, if you watched it all in that era, you remember the big Russian Nikolai Volkov, and you remember him singing the Russian national (laughs) anthem at the beginning of his matches, and yeah, Volkov was a little bit older. He was in his early 70s. I believe it was 72 or 73. It was a couple weeks ago that he passed. He, however, had been told by doctors that he needed a stent put into his heart, and he said no, and a couple weeks later, he passed away, so... A little bit unfortunate and, and kind of sad to say that part of that was was brought on by himself by not listening to doctors. Now, the other one you mentioned is Brian Lawler. He'll be known as Brian Christopher yeah. in the WWF. Now, this is son of Jerry Lawler, who is known as the king, of course. Uh, the the circumstances around his death are a lot more suspicious, actually. Now, he he was having a really tough time in life. He had substance abuse problems. I believe he was in jail for his third DUI. Uh, it was it was a rough life, and uh, it was said originally that he had committed suicide while he was in jail. Um, now, recent developments. There's been an interview done by Jerry Lawler and his lawyer on Memphis Television, where they've investigated, saw a picture of Brian Lawler after passing, and it was said that he had strangled himself or hung himself with his shoelaces, but the marks around his neck didn't really match that. He had also gotten into a fight the day before in jail, and then mysteriously, the 20 cameras in the Memphis jail were not working the night of his passing. Really? There's a lot, you know, this is only a first report, that, but but now Jerry's looking into this as you know a lot more than than a suicide. There's there's homicide allegations here, obviously, and they continue to look into that. And I mean that's obviously something I'll be following on my radio show on uh, on Sunday nights as more details come out. Right, 11 p.m. Sunday night main event on TSN 11:50 on Twitter at Agnew Jason and Jay. Let's uh, finish on a more positive note. Mm. SummerSlam coming Big up. Yeah. So what what uh, should we expect coming up uh, in SummerSlam? Well, we'll finally see if WWE decides to pull the trigger on Roman Reigns as your champion. Of course, the big name on the card, uh, well, there's two, actually. I mean, Ronda Rousey is wrestling on the card against Alexa Bliss. I don't expect her to take the title away. But Brock Lesnar, who, of course, made headlines all over the sports world, walking into the UFC octagon and pushing Daniel Cormier in what was a magnificent stunt on (laughs) UFC's part. And I can't wait to see that fight. And I think a lot of other MMA fans and sports fans are thinking that same thing. Well, the problem is Brock Lesnar is still holding the universal title in, in the fake land of WWE. So it's curious to see what's going to happen here if uh, after three or four times over now, Reigns has faced off with Brock Lesnar, and they're doing it again on Sunday night. And it'll be curious to see if because Brock is on his way to UFC, if WWE pulls the trigger on finally giving Reigns this title. And there's other options here as well because Kevin Owens is wrestling Braun Strowman in order to try to win away the money in the bank briefcase. So it could very well be a thing of where maybe Reigns does beat Lesnar and then Owens or Braun cashes in and we get a double title change on this one pay-per-view. So uh, quite an interesting affair happening on Sunday. Yeah, and at some point, as you said, with Brock going back to the UFC, he's going to need to drop the belt because he's going to have to go into training and all that. Like WWE wouldn't let him keep the belt while prepping and being away for so long to get ready for UFC, would they? I put nothing... Nothing is for sure when it comes to Brock Lesnar. He is someone who operates on his own schedule. 
He is treated completely different than any other wrestler on the WWE roster. He WWE realizes, and UFC, Dana White realizes, that he is a huge star. He is an instant draw. He is a million pay-per-view buys for UFC, and he does very well in WWE. So with that said, I'm, I'm going to say never say never, Andy, which is what we say in the world of wrestling. I do expect him to drop the title before going back to UFC, but never say never. Wouldn't it be interesting if he wins at UFC, still WWE champ, both belts come out? How about yeah, that? that? That gold Whoa. on each shoulder. Yeah, gold man. on each shoulder. Yeah. Could you if if Dana White and Vince McMahon could have could you know get on the uh, the same page promo wise? How cool of a crossover would that be? Well, oh man! I think the biggest problem is not the WWE championship, but it's right. the fact that he'd have to defeat Daniel he Cormier. Does. And I don't care <laughs> yeah. if he's bigger and stronger. Daniel Cormier is great. He's he's uh, better, he is yeah. one of the greatest of all time. He's also. One heck of a nice guy. And he's also a big professional wrestling fan, which is why I think he is loving his life right now, <laughs> working this angle, and I will say angle, Andy, with Brock Lesnar. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, Jay, hey, man, great stuff. Thank you so much. And people can catch Sunday night's main event, TSN 1150 at 11 p.m., a must-listen if you're a wrestling fan. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, tell the powers that be to get me back on 1050. I'll, you I'll see what make it, that happen. You got stroke, right? I'm happy to be here, brother. We'll <laughs> I'll see what I can do. All, All right, right, thanks. Thanks, Jay. Jason Agnew on Twitter, at Agnew. Jason, again, host of Sunday night's main event. Give him a follow on Twitter. That Brock Lesnar situation is fascinating with the UFC, with Daniel Cormier. Man, that's, uh, that's going to be interesting to follow along to. All right, folks, it's time. The greatest moments in history are now up to you. This is TSN 1050's Sound Wars. It's 11.52 here on TSN 1050 Toronto Today. I'm Andy McNamara. Well, the bracket-style tournament competition to crown a champ is done. But now it's time for the ultimate championship Sound Wars battle. First, last year's reigning, defending champion, a number seven seed, pulling off all the stops to win it all. It's they did it, Naylor. The first pick goes to the Maple Leafs. The Toronto Maple Leafs. The Leafs. The Leafs. They did it, Naylor. I always love that. They did it, Naylor. The challenger, your 2018 champ, representing the Yes Guy, No Guy Conference. Seed number one, Mac Jameson. Friday pre-tapes, you're into this kind of stuff. I'm so excited. I wish I was in my car, like, driving around. All right, so this is a Vegas legend. I caught up with him earlier this afternoon. Mac Jameson. Mac, what's happening? Is this Brian? This is Brian. Did that just cut out? This is a joke, isn't it? I've been, <laughs> I'm calling you out. I don't know who you're talking you, about. Man. You were my boy. We were peas and carrots two minutes ago, and you just wall squat great white sharded right in my hip. Mac Jameson? I want to hear the beginning again, because I guarantee if I hear the guy's voice, I'll tell you who it is. All right. Is this Brian? This is this Brian. I quit the show. So there you go. You can go to tsn1050.ca right now. Click on Sound Wars and vote for your ultimate Sound Wars champion. They did it, Naylor. Or Mac Jameson. Voting for this Sound War closes Thursday at 8 a.m. Listen to Landsberg in the morning for the Sound Wars ultimate champion for the summer of 2018. Only on TSN 1050. 